Well, good morning. My name is Matt. I'm the senior pastor here at Bible Center. It is great having you with us to worship the Lord and be the family of God right here at Bible Center Church. I want to tell you a little bit this morning about my brother and my sister. I've talked about both of them in different sermons, um, but this morning I really felt that it was fitting to uh, what this text is about. My brother is in heaven. Uh, He died at age two and a half from neuroblastoma. His name was Robbie. Uh, He died of March in 1980, and I was born three months later in June of 1980. Uh, My brother, a little over a year old, my mom was changing his diaper and found a lump in his stomach, Uh, took him to the doctor and found out he had neuroblastoma, and uh, within the year he had passed on. There were a group of men from our church, I've told you before, that I was part of a pretty hard religion, uh, so if you ever notice at times that I really, really go after folks like that, there's a lot of reasons. I should probably like process that in counseling perhaps, but uh, I really, really uh, was disturbed to hear my dad say that a group of men from the church came and told him that evidently he had had some hidden sin in his life. If he would only confess that sin, God would heal his son, my brother. Thankfully, the Lord gave grace and allowed my parents to get through that, and they continue to this day to grieve and look forward to the day of meeting my brother again in person, uh, in heaven, in in the new heavens and the new earth. Uh, But I ask myself the question, what gives somebody hope to make it through a horrible uh, circumstance or to get through their life after enduring such horrible days? My sister right now is in a hospital in Pennsylvania. Uh, She had surgery two weeks ago, and they thought everything was going to be okay. She got an infection, and so they had to go back in and put a drain in. And uh, after their second surgery on Monday or Tuesday, they thought, okay, now things are going well. Uh, But we just got some more concerning news yesterday. She's still in the hospital almost a week. Her white blood count's going back up, and uh, they're going to try some other things. So this morning, she's on my heart. And I'm asking myself the question as I talk with my sister and pray with my sister and think through what you're going through, what do you say to offer someone hope? Ultimately, we know that people just want us to be present more than they want us to speak. But when we're going through tough situations, where do we find hope to get us through? Last week, I asked on social media for you to share Uh, areas where maybe you're tempted to lose hope or where your friends and family lose hope. And this is what you wrote. Many of you are struggling, a number of you are struggling with finances, whether it be credit card debt you can't get out of or smothered by bills, expenses increasing while paychecks not increasing. Some of you this year have lost your jobs or you're looking for a job or you thought you were going to get the promotion and you didn't. You have a car that keeps breaking down. The weather, every time you turn on the news, another hurricane, something else crazy. And the weather affects us from small to great. It's no small matter uh, when we can't go on vacation. Maybe you had a vacation schedule and you paid money and you saved up all year and you lost that money. That's a big deal. And we also know that the people who live in these disaster zones are experiencing it in a way that some of us have never experienced. How do you have hope to get through something so great? 
the opioid epidemic, continual burdens of something like even panic attacks or losing weight or a habitual sin that you've wanted to overcome and you know God's inviting you to overcome, but you just can't seem to break the habits. Some of you, many of you are in law enforcement or you're in the legal system somewhere. And day in and day out, humanity continues to throw its worst. And you wonder, is there any hope for Charleston? Is there any hope for the world? Maybe you've lost a loved one this year. You're a widow or a widower. You're alone. You're burdened for your kids. You've got a prodigal son or a prodigal daughter. A friend has let you down. You're a student just being, just caving to the pressures of homework and keeping good grades and sports, not to mention all the other burdens of the world. We've got madmen hurling missiles over Japan and bad news at every turn. How do we find hope? Thankfully, the book of Colossians speaks to all of these things. And in Colossians chapter 1 this morning, my goal in this message is to show you where true hope is found and how it can apply to every situation in your life and mine. Let me invite you to take your Bibles with me and let's open to Colossians chapter 1 and begin to look at where we find this hope. Please stand with me out of respect for God's Word. Colossians chapter 1 in verse 15. It's talking about Jesus. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he, Jesus, is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you who were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds... He has now reconciled in the body of his flesh by death to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven and of which I, Paul, became a minister. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Why do we sometimes lose our hope? If you've ever been there, why do we do it? Well, first of all, because we trust in the wrong images of God. There are times when we trust in the wrong images of God. According to verse 5, the Colossian believers had a level of hope. Pastor Chad preached a few weeks ago on how they had faith and love and hope. And, and Paul brags on that, like Paul often did at the beginning of a letter but by the time you get to verse 23, he's beginning to change his tone. And he's reminding the Colossians that, yes, while they have hope, he's asking them to keep their hope, not to lose the hope they have in the gospel. So why were they being tempted to lose their hope? 
Well, in the book of Colossians, we find there were false teachers coming to this first century church teaching things that weren't true about Jesus. They were saying things like Jesus was the brother of Satan. Jesus was one of the angels. He happened to earn a little bit of a promotion, but he was created just like all the angels were created. And we're going to get into in the next few weeks more of the heresies, the false teachings that were being present in the church. But of all the teaching, in essence, they were saying Jesus isn't who he says he is. He's not quite as high as some of you think he is. And so you've got this first century church of new believers beginning to question, is this true? Is Jesus all that he says he is? And so Paul writes in chapter 2, in verse 8, he reminds them not to get caught up in wrong philosophies. He says, See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. They had this wrong imagination about Jesus, and it was affecting their hope, creating hopelessness. We do this sometimes in our relationships with friends. We go into a friendship with these big expectations. We think this particular friend is going to be the best friend we've ever had. But the more you get to know that man or that woman, you find that, you know, they're not quite like I thought they were. You think they're great, but you find out they're like Virginia Tech fans or Ohio State fans. And, you know, your expectations just aren't quite met. But in all seriousness, you get to know somebody and you find out that they have habits or hobbies and you begin to think, well, they're just weird. They send their kids to a school that you don't send your kids to or they feed their children food that you don't feed your children. And so this, this distance begins to grow between you and them. We've all experienced it. But that's often what we do uh, to Jesus. We see it again in our marriages. We go into marriage with these great expectations, right? Like we see our spouses, like they, we think they see us like Brad Pitt. They really don't, but we think they do. We see them like Kim Kardashian, not that I know who that is. but we, we, we. And then after a few years, life sets in. And you realize, hey, this person isn't perfect. No longer does every look set fire to wet leaves, but now it's just kind of life and you're doing calendar together, and you're in the family business together. That's often the way it is with Jesus. And so our hope begins to erode from the inside out when, we, when we're not quite convinced that Jesus is who he says he is. Some of the wrong imaginations about Jesus today, there's two that come to mind. One is the Santa Claus Jesus. I call him the cosmic Santa Claus there's this view of Jesus that if you do right, he will give you all the wealth. He'll make you healthy, wealthy, and wise. Your kids will never get in trouble. Life will always be good if only you put Jesus first in your life. That's the cosmic Santa Claus. And I believe there may be some of you who've tried that, and you've done everything right, but you're nowhere near in life where you think you should be at this stage. And you're questioning, why did Jesus let me down? It may be you've had this wrong view of Jesus to begin with. There's the other Jesus. I call him the, you know, the beat-down Jesus. 
Uh, it's common here in Appalachia. Maybe you grew up in a system where it was constantly preached to you that if you step out of line, Jesus is going to get you. He's going to throw lightning bolts from heaven. As a matter of fact, he's kind of hoping you step out of line because he loves to throw lightning bolts from heaven. I call that the beat down Jesus. And whatever your image of Jesus is, God invites us back to the scriptures to find out who he really is. And in finding out who he really is, he then gives us hope. Who can give us genuine hope? Well, I've already said it. Jesus is the only true image of God. We see it in verse 15. In verse 15, he writes, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Jesus is the only true image of God. The word image means, it comes from the, the Greek word icon. Uh, we still use that word a lot. It refers to exact replicas. Idols in the first century were called icons. And you see it some even in traditions today. Your Facebook picture in some way is like your icon. Uh, when the quarter, George Washington's face, is an image of George Washington himself, uh, the picture in the mirror that you saw this morning, men, when you shaved, uh, that's an, an image of you. But even in a better explanation, Jesus isn't just a picture of God. Jesus is fully God and fully man. He is 100% God and 100% human. The baby in the manger wasn't just a guru, but the baby in the manger was God. The teachers in Colossae were teaching with this word fullness. They were saying that, well, Jesus is important. Just like all the other angels and spirits are important. And they used this word, we translate fullness, to say that in the, in the heavenly realm, the angels and the spirits and Jesus, who had got a promotion, they were the fullness of God. And Paul writes in this chapter, look with me at verse 19, he says, in him, in Jesus, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Paul often used words right from their culture. He used images from their culture that they would understand. And he says, no, no, they're not the fullness of God. Jesus alone is the fullness of God. Hebrews chapter 1 in verse 3 writes, Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. He upholds the universe by the word of his power and making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. In John 14, 9, Jesus said, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. Now think of the word image. If you're taking notes and you underline, I underline in verse 15 the word image. Think of where you've heard the word image in your Bible before. Think Old Testament. Pretty important, pretty famous verses, the word image. My mind goes back to the Ten Commandments. Remember the first commandment, thou shalt have no other gods before me? And then there's the second commandment. What was it? Don't make any graven images. So Paul is writing to an audience that's mixed both Jewish and Gentile, pagan and Jewish backgrounds, both of them coming together in the church. And he uses a lot of Jewish imagery. I'm convinced in verse 15 he uses the word image pointing back to Exodus chapter 20. 
Think what happened. Back at, the Mount, at Mount Sinai, God told his people, don't make any graven images. Why would God say that? Well, obviously, none of us could ever make an image that comes close to representing God. We never could. We can carve trees and carve rocks and statues, but it's always going to come short. And so it wasn't just an arbitrary rule that God said, don't do this because it's not right. He had a reason. Don't do it because you'll never be able to do it right. There's only one, think of this. There's only one person in the history of the universe who's been able to carve and create an image of God. And God himself did that when he came in the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus is the only image of God upon which we can rely. He is the spitting image of God. Jesus is everything about God that we would ever need to know. Pastor Chad and I met this week, and we're beginning to look at the series for 2018, and we're, we're dreaming and talking and praying. And one of the series that I want to go through next year is I want to go through one of the Gospels. I don't know which one yet, but we're just praying through which gospel are we going to go through verse by verse. Maybe we'll start with Mark. But one of the reasons that I want to go through a gospel next year is because I don't think, I don't, not I don't think, I know, I don't yet fully know who Jesus is. I, I don't. If, if, I hope it's okay for me to admit that as your senior pastor. I don't know who Jesus is completely. I don't think I will until I get to heaven but when you read the Gospels, you learn things about Jesus that maybe aren't familiar with your religious tradition. We learn with whom Jesus ate, with whom Jesus visited, and whose houses he We learn what he would say, crazy circumstances, how he would forgive, when he would show grace. And when you read the Gospels, some of our traditions that we've had for generations... Don't measure up to the Jesus we see in the New Testament. And so we're going to go on this journey together. Let me also recommend a book with you, uh, to you. It's by Jared Wilson. It's called Your Jesus is Too Safe. Uh, Sarah thinks this is the creepiest cover on my shelf. Uh, kind of creepy, but it's a great book. I trust it'll be a blessing to you if you want to pick that up locally or from Amazon uh, this week. Why is Jesus so help hopeful? Why is Jesus so hopeful? Well, the next six verses are going to explain why. We're going to go through them quickly. But Paul always starts with who Jesus is and what he has done. Jesus wasn't different than the Apostle Paul in that Paul didn't preach one Jesus and Jesus didn't live. Enough. Paul would point back to the character of Christ. And he does so in verses 15 through 20. These verses form a poem it's possible they are an excerpt from a hymn uh, used by the first century. Uh, most believe, though, that Paul wrote it out. It was beautifully written. It uses images from Genesis, Exodus, Psalms, and Proverbs, all put together to the glory and majesty of Jesus. Why is Jesus so hopeful? Well, number one, Jesus is sovereign over creation. He's sovereign over creation. Verse 15 again. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. How can we trust Jesus for hope? Because he's sovereign, he rules, he reigns, he is Lord over creation. 
The word firstborn in verse 15, uh, it's confusing to us, but if we were a a first century Jew or an Old Testament Jew, we would understand this word was used throughout the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, Israel was called God's firstborn, which means they were at the place of honor. They had authority given to them by God. Uh, David was called God's firstborn. It simply meant that David had this authority, this kingship given to him by God. But here, Paul uses it to apply to Jesus and says, Jesus is the firstborn. He is the, he's been given all the authority of the Father and can act with all the authority of the Father. Jesus is God. Think about Jesus that you see on earth. Jesus calms the waves. The waves are splashing. He's taking a nap. The disciples come to him. They wake him up almost just kind of aggravated, and Jesus stands up and says, peace be still, and the waves and the waters are still. How could he do that? He could do that because he was Lord over creation. We see it in all four Gospels. Jesus took a Lunchable, five loaves and two fishes. In essence, it was a Lunchable, and he and he fed thousands of people. The text says 5,000 men besides women and children. There might have been upwards of 15,000 people there. How could Jesus do that? He could do that because he's Lord over creation. How could he look at Lazarus and say, Lazarus, come forth? And a dude who had been dead for four days. Now, some of you doctors are amazing. And you're able, maybe you've brought somebody back who's been gone for a few minutes, but four days. This this person is dead, dead. And Jesus calls them forth from the grave, and Lazarus lives. How could he do that? He could only do that if he's the Lord over creation. He created all things. This word, all things, is a jab. Some of you have a personality. Maybe you're a little snarky. I won't, I won't point any of you out. But, but really, this is Paul being a little snarky. He, he gets this way sometimes. Uh, most believe that this phrase was a jab at Caesar, Marcus Aurelius, who had written years before in his memoirs called Meditations. He wrote this, Nature, all things come of you. In you, nature, all things have their being and return to you. In the original language, Paul uses almost the exact same words and the exact same construction to call out Marcus Aurelius. He is saying, no, no, no. no. Nature isn't the source of your authority. Nature didn't give birth to Rome, as was the tradition. But he said, Jesus is the sovereign Lord over creation. And it's Jesus who made all things. So picture, you're a first century Christian sitting in the church. The Apostle Paul sends this letter. It is read aloud. And you know exactly what he's saying. Your hope isn't Rome. Your hope isn't the Roman flag. Your hope isn't the Roman president. Your hope is in the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And in 2017, your hope is not the United States. It's not the American flag. And it's not the United States president, whomever he or she may be. But your hope is the King of kings and Lord of lords. And it resonates with us as it resonated with them. 
my goodness, Jesus is the Lord, the sovereign Lord over creation. There's been a question the last few weeks, how could God be God and let the hurricanes do what they did? I think it's a valid question. Some of us have family members, loved ones, friends. How could God do that? The answer comes in two parts. We always want to answer with humility. So if you're at the water cooler at work or you're talking with a friend over lunch, we never want to feel like we have all the answers because we don't. Uh, Ultimately, God is sovereign. That's the answer. God knows what he's doing. But it's helpful to mention two things. And that's, first of all, when God created this earth, he created, he said his creation is good. Um, Adam and Eve chose to sin, and through their sin, sin entered the world. And throughout the Bible, we see this curse upon creation. Uh, Creation is bearing the, the scars of Adam and Eve's sin and of our sin. And so the whole creation, Paul says, groans like a woman in childbirth. It's groaning, waiting for the day that it's redeemed. The way that God, when God makes a new heavens and new earth. So in one sense, we often blame God for things that are the result of mankind and womankind's sin. So it's good to know that. But the second half of that is this. Even though, yes, it's the result of our sin, there is no stray molecule in the universe. Verse 17, Paul says, By Jesus, all things are held together, everything. So it's not like God is an ambulance driver that we pray whenever there's a disaster and he shows up just in the nick of time and we're like, good, thankfully God's going to show up. Now God's going to fix all of this. God's not the ambulance driver. God is the surgeon. And God is the sovereign Lord who cuts into our world for purposes that we don't yet understand. And so instead of us having this weak need view of Jesus that comes to the rescue, hopefully in the nick of time, we can step back and say, we do not understand, but we can worship you, great God and Lord of all, because you are sovereign. Now that's easy for me to say when my house isn't under three feet of water. That's easy to say when my spouse is still alive. It's easy to say when my kids are still at home and things are going well. But I invite you, no matter what you're going through, to recognize Jesus is sovereign Lord over it all. He created all things. He's also the sovereign Lord over the church. Look with me at verse 18. And he is the head of the body the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. Verse 18 begins the second half of the poem. The first three verses, verses 15 through 17, were about the first creation. Verses 18 through 20, they mirror each other. It's about the new creation. We, the church, are part of God's beginning of his new creation. We're part of this covenant community who've been saved by Jesus Christ. Why is it so great? Why did Jesus, or how did Jesus save us? He says in verse 18, he's the beginning, the firstborn, uses the word again from verse 15, from the dead. This is a poetic way of saying Jesus created all things by the word of his power, and he will save us by his resurrection. 
Jesus was the first one to be, re- to be resurrected from the dead to eternal life. Therefore, we have hope of a future resurrection as well. I remember as a kid thinking, well, Jesus really wasn't the first resurrection. Think about it. Was there anybody before Jesus that you can remember who was resurrected from the dead? Lazarus, right. Lazarus was resurrected from the dead. There were others. Uh, Jesus uh, ro- uh, resurrected Jairus' daughter in the Gospels. Again, there were others. Jesus raised from the dead. But the difference is this. Every person who was ever resurrected prior to Jesus died again. They all died again. Now, there's a tradition. I don't know if it's true or not, but a tradition in one place says that Lazarus struggled with anxiety. They didn't call it anxiety back then, but he struggled with anxiety. I don't know why, but you think about it. He's already been through this once, right? Like, Like, he knows that death isn't fun. And so I don't know that it was necessarily a great... I'm going to speculate for a minute. This is, this is not in your Bible, but I'm just going to speculate. Uh, I don't know, but what it wasn't a great idea for La- on Lazarus's end to be resurrected from the dead. I mean, think about it. He wakes up and his spirit is in the very presence of God and like over the intercom of heaven. Lazarus, come forth. Who would want to leave that? And you've got to come back to earth and die again. But Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead and others from the dead, but they all died. But Jesus was the first one to be raised to everlasting presence, everlasting resurrected existence. And because Jesus was resurrected eternally, we too will be resurrected eternally. So what? What does that mean for us? Well, in verse 18, Paul says that. Some translations say so that so that in everything he might be preeminent. If you're taking notes, you can write first place or supreme. That in everything, Jesus would be preeminent. That Jesus would have first place. Now let's be honest with one another. It's difficult at times for us to keep Jesus first place in every area of our lives. It's not only difficult, it's impossible. We try, and God invites us into that, but we're, we're human. We're broken people. Um, one of the reasons that it's difficult is because, again, we have sin, and we will have this sinful body. It's called the flesh until we go to heaven. And so there's not one of us that can get up here and brag, Jesus is number one in every area of my life, every minute of the day. We ask God to make it increasingly so, but we're broken by sin. And it's also part of our culture. We're broken with our culture. You know, we live in a culture, for the last hundred years in the United States, some would argue maybe 80, but we live in a culture where we want it our way, and we want it our way right away, just about everything. You know, we, we come into church, we're waiting for somebody to give us a foot rub, uh, we, we go to the store, we want, you know, we go to McDonald's, you want to, no, I don't want a foot rub from McDonald's, but you, you, everywhere we... We're trained to think about us being number one. But in this passage, he says, no, no, no. Jesus is number one. It's about Christ. It's not about us. And so he invites us to put him number one in our marriages, number one in our attitudes, number one in our, in our, in our, with our children, number one with our ministries, with our thought life, with, with our, the way we care for ourselves, the way we care for our neighbor, that in all things Jesus might be preeminent. He is victorious. Number three, why is Jesus so hopeful? 
is because he is sovereign over the cross. Jesus is sovereign over the cross. Verses 20 through 22, Paul writes, And through him, Jesus, to reconcile to himself all things, there it is again, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you who were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you, put yourself there, present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you have heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. Number three, Jesus is sovereign over the cross. What is he doing here? Well, he's using these two pictures of the gospel. Essentially, he starts by zooming out and describing this great big gospel picture and says that Jesus is bringing all things, reconciling all things to himself. We've talked before about the bigger picture of the gospel. The gospel isn't just that God saves sinners, but the gospel is also that God's going to save creation. He's going to make a new heaven and a new earth. And so Paul is zooming out for a bit and saying, remember, no matter what you're going through, this isn't the end. I will make all things new. And so in verse 20, he, he zooms out, but in verse 21, he starts to zoom in. He says, not only is God going to make all things new, but one day God is going to make you new. And by the way, he already has made you blameless and forgiven because of your position in Jesus. Romans chapter 8, verses 19 through 21, Paul sums up both Gospels. And he says, For all creation is waiting eagerly for that future day when God will reveal who his children really are. Against its will, all creation was subjected to God's curse. But with eager hope, the creation looks forward to the day when it will join God's children in glorious freedom from death and decay. Verse 20 is not saying that the devil and all those who reject Christ are going to get a second chance. That's not what verse 20 is teaching. We'll see it when we dive into chapter 2. What he is teaching is this. Our hope is in the future reconciliation of all things, heaven and earth, our very physical existence and resurrected bodies. That's where we put all of our eggs. That's the basket that we put. That's our hope. That's our focus. That's our future. That is where we look. Now think with me for a minute all the way back to the beginning of Garden of Eden. Adam and Eve lived in perfect existence. Adam and Eve walked with God. They talked with God. But Adam and Eve chose to sin. First Eve, then Adam. Adam and Eve are kicked out of the Garden of Eden, and God sets up a barricade. The book of Genesis describes it like an angelic barricade. They weren't allowed to come back in the Garden of Eden. If they came back in the Garden of Eden, we speculate, they might have been able to eat from the tree of life and perhaps uh, be able to live forever. There's a lot of what-ifs. But either way, they weren't allowed to come back to the Garden. This is what the cross does. When Jesus died on the cross, Paul's using this image of the Garden of Eden here. He says, there is an Eden to come. It's called the new heavens and new earth. You can read about it in the last few chapters of Revelation. There's an Eden to come. 
there's still a barricade, and it's our sin. It's God himself blocking us because of our sin. But that same God who cannot allow sin and cannot allow holiness into the new Eden, the new heavens and the new earth, has made a way for us to be able to get there. What is that way? The answer is the cross. In the cross, there is, a, there is a battering ram that can knock through the barricade of justice. Jesus took all of our sin, all of our guilt, all of our shame, and he gave us all of his righteousness, all of his grace, all of his forgiveness. And so Paul, having talked for a while about creation in Eden, he says, you can be part of God's new creation because of what Jesus did for you on the cross. Whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, and whoever believes in him will not perish, but have what? everlasting life. Maybe you're here this morning and you've been trying to bust your way into God through your own good works. I have no doubt that you're a good person, that you try to do good works. I have no doubt about that. I'm glad you're here. But let's get honest for a minute. Our good works will never be good enough to get us to this place Paul's talking about. They just never will. We'll just keep falling short. We'll keep sinking. I was reminded of it yesterday when we went to a, uh, did the Capital City Challenge, the Run, Row, Ride. Uh, Steve Blackwell, his sister Kathy, Kathy Burdett, sweet lady, and I did the three. We were able to split it up. So I did the first part, the running. Steve did the rowing, and she did a great job uh, on the bike. But Steve, uh, he's not in this service. He was in the first service. I wouldn't say this if he was here, but, but Steve really let us down. He really let us down. Uh, and I'll tell you why he let us down. We got the baton, so to speak, to Steve. He was like number six in line to take off with his boat. So he was excited, and we were excited. Steve jumps in the water with his boat. He's like kind of surprised. He puts his life jacket on, and he's jumping in the boat, and he takes off. And, and he says, tell Kathy it'll be 40 minutes. He thought it'd be 40 minutes to row four miles. But he was taking off pretty fast. I was excited. And so I start back up the hill. We're at Daniel Boone Park. I start back up the hill to run back. I'm going to try to beat him back to tell Kathy to get ready. And I, on my way back, I'm cutting up the hill, and I hear Steve holler something from the river. And I thought he said, by the way, great job. And so I say, thanks, man. But I found out later that's not what he was saying. He was saying, my kayak is sinking. Help. That sounds a lot like great job, right? It sounds, that's all. well, I didn't hear him. I heard him holler, mumble something. I take off and, and, and I never did, couldn't figure out why I wasn't seeing him along the river. Like I kept looking back like, where is Steve? Where is Steve? Come to find out he had borrowed a kayak and the person from whom he borrowed it didn't give him the plug. So it, the hole was, some of you kayak owners know what I'm talking about. The hole was still there. Steve could have called me, but his phone was submerged. Um, and so he, he goes to the shore, he says, and he gets a big trash bag from the latest flood, and he stuffs it with a stick into the hole, and then he takes a, his, I guess he had just got his oar, bought his oar, he got the price tag sticker off of his oar and tried to like seal it. Needless to say, it didn't work very well. 
Uh, multiple times down the river, he had to get out and dump out his, and that's what took him forever to get back. We waited and waited and waited. It made us really look bad in the paper this morning, really did. Um, he could try to plug the hole all he wanted to, but he was still going to sink. You can try to plug your life with religion all you want to, but without Jesus, you're still going to sink. The only way to God is through Jesus Christ. And this morning, I beg you, put your faith in Jesus in your own words. Call on the name of the Lord. This afternoon, we're having a baptism. If you'll trust Jesus in this service, you can declare today, I want to be a follower of Christ. I'm just gonna, usually I go out there, I'm going to stick around here at the front. If that's you and you say, man, I want to be a follower of Jesus, I prayed with you at the end of the service to receive Christ. I want to be baptized. Come and see me. We would love to include you with the 15 after 2.30 today. Jesus is Lord over creation. He is he's Lord over the church. He's Lord over the cross. So what's the main encouragement? What's the main challenge today? It's simply this. Don't lose your hope. Don't lose your hope. In verse 23... Paul writes, if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the, the hope of the gospel which you have heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation. In, in one sense, it's a statement. Paul is saying, if you truly believe the gospel, you're not going to lose your hope. So it's understood, but it's Paul's polite way of encouraging this church. Don't lose your hope. And this morning, I want to leave you with that encouragement. Don't lose your hope. Let's think about this for a minute. How does the gospel prevent you from losing your hope if you're struggling financially? The gospel is not believe in Jesus and you're going to get rich. That's not the gospel. The gospel is this. Your identity isn't wrapped up in your 401k or your checking account. The gospel is your identity is wrapped up in what Jesus says about you. The truest thing about you is what Jesus says about you. If you're forgiven and a saint, that's your identity. And so often, whenever we struggle financially, we're worried about what others think of us. And it is embarrassing. It can be difficult to reach out for help. But let me invite you to reach out for help. Let us help you as a part of this church family. And if it's not us, let us uh, provide coaching or some help. Because again, most of us have been there. But the gospel says one day he's going to make all things new. And making all things new means you'll never have to worry about missing another meal again. You never have to worry about that stigma that you feel that you have. That's not the truest thing about you. The gospel speaks to your finances. The gospel speaks to your job. Like, How does the gospel speak to my job? The gospel speaks to your job in this way. Your unemployment is not the truest thing about you. Your unemployment might be a circumstance of your life, but eternally speaking, over a gazillion years, the, most true, the truest thing about you is what Jesus says about you. I know it's embarrassing. I've stood in the unemployment line. I know what some of you are feeling, but know this. In God's sight, he says, you're just as righteous as Jesus Christ, and God will take care of his children. Your unemployment isn't the truest thing about you. What about health? 
How does the gospel speak to health? I heard on the news last week a popular speaker telling the, the victims of, of Hurricane, um, I think it was Harvey, the first one, that God's got great things in store for you. God is going to pay you back tenfold over everything you've lost. That is so wrong. Now, I hope that happens. And God, could God do that? Sure, God could do that. But as he's talking, I'm thinking about what happens about the person who's lost everything and will spend the next 20 years trying to make up for lost house, lost vehicles, lost lives. Does God promise you that in this life you're going to have everything your heart's ever wanted? No. But God does promise there's coming a day there's going to be a new heaven and a new earth and a new body. And one of the ladies in our church who recently received a, a really tough diagnosis, she wrote me this week and said this, Thankfully, we have a more perfect hope, not on what we wish will happen, but on what God has already promised. And she goes on to refer to eternity. That's our hope. You have a hope. Some of you are swamped in diapers right now, and you can't even think about the new heavens and the new earth. You just think about changing 30,000 diapers a week. How does the gospel speak to that? The gospel speaks to that in that one day, there's no more diapers in heaven. That's all I got on that one. <laughs> Weather, a new heaven and a new earth. No more hurricanes, no more disaster, no more addiction, no more death. No more student pressures to perform. No more friends to let you down. No more failures in your own life towards your, your own friends. No more crazy people in the world lobbing missiles from one continent to the, another, to, to the next. The gospel gives us hope because it shows this is not all there is. Which is why at the end of the book of Colossians, he says, Set your mind on things above, not on things on the earth. Sometimes the message in the Bible is this, cheer up, things are going to get worse. But it doesn't end that way. He created all things, he's redeeming all things, and one day he will restore all things. Let's turn from false images of Jesus and remember he is sovereign over creation. He is sovereign over the church and he is sovereign, he is sovereign over the cross. He planned it all. Don't lose your hope. Will you pray with me? Father, thank you so much for the message of the gospel and how it applies to everyday living. We're just standing on the edge of Colossians, and I pray you would form our church through it. Make us the men and women you have called us to be through this gospel story. Help us to find our place in the story. I pray for those this morning who've not yet found their place in the story that today would be the day they commit their lives to Christ. With heads bowed and eyes closed, if, if that's you, and you've not yet become a follower of Jesus, can I invite you to do that right where you sit? There's no magic prayer in the Bible, but whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. I'll pray. I invite you to follow along with me in your own words, right there in your heart. Dear Lord, I know I'm a sinner. I know I can't earn my way to heaven. I know I'm broken. But I believe you want to forgive me. 
I believe you want to heal me. I believe you want to start to change me. I believe you rose from the grave on the third day after dying for my sins. Make me a Christian. Give me new life. With heads bowed and eyes closed, if you prayed that prayer and you meant that, will you let me know before you leave? I'll be talking to friends and the like after the service, but I'll be right down front. Will you just catch me and say, hey, I prayed that prayer. I'd love to follow up with you this week. Maybe you want to get baptized today. Let's do it. I'd love to talk with you about that. Father, again, thank you for the cross. In Jesus' name, amen.